Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today, we continue our series, The Price of Victory, with a message titled, The Benefits of Giving. So turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 to 9, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. In this series on 2 Corinthians 8 to 13, well, you might think that, you know, we've been on the subject of giving for some time now, and I just guess it's true. But, you know, one of the points I've been continually making is that it is not manipulative to ask people to give. You know, I've been in pastoral ministry for a good many years, and I can say that I've observed both generous people as well as people who are not. And and it's not to say that, you know, I went into their giving records in any part of the congregation. I never did that. But I did become aware of the generous givers, and it was there in a way in which they lived their lives. And there was a spiritual freedom that I saw in them, a freedom that was not there in those who didn't give. Listen to what some notable people have said about giving. J.L. Kraft, who was the head of Kraft Cheese Corporation, said, The only investment I ever made which has paid consistently increasing dividends is the money I have given to the Lord. That's an interesting quote when you say. How about this one from the very famous psychologist, Carl Menager? He said, generous people are rarely mentally ill. Now that from a man who is intimately familiar with the subject. How about one quote from the very famous George Mueller, who ran an orphanage for the poor in London, England? You know, commenting on how we are prone to worry about how we're going to do financially, he said, the beginning of anxiety is the end of faith. And the beginning of true faith is the end of anxiety. Ah, But we respond, I don't know what would happen to me if I take a chance on the money that I earn. There may be not enough for me. You know, something should go wrong. And what would become of my money if I gave it away? Well, listen to Mueller again. The beginning of true faith, which, of course, is a full trust in God for everything, means that finally, oh, how wonderfully satisfying, but finally... I come to the end of my anxiety over that which the future holds. We now fully trust a God who loves us completely, and our confidence is in his concern for us. Well, that's the end of all of our worries. Now, I did promise that that was the last quote, but please forgive me. I I just can't resist. One more, and this from the very famous Winston Churchill. Churchill said, we make a living by what we get, but we make a life by what we give. That's because Churchill knew that what we give does define us. Okay, I promise, I'm done with quotes. We come now to 2 Corinthians 9, verses 6 through 10. Paul has been giving the technical details of a project for which he was raising money. But all of this talk of the project itself, of the Corinthian church's commitment to give to it, and of how because of internal strife in the church, they had let the matter lapse, well, all that's now done. You know, but Paul has some important pieces of wisdom about giving in general. Indeed, Paul wants to talk to all of us who give, either generously or with a great sense of reluctance. It's time for some rather straight talk on the matter of giving. There are three very important benefits that come to people who are generous givers. The first is this. You simply can't outgive God. Let's read 2 Corinthians 9, verse 6. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. 
You know, the words, the point is, I mean, those three words are actually not found in the original text. It's another example of an ellipsis. The actual text simply says, this, whoever sows sparingly, and so on. So as you can see, the translators had to supply what this Paul was talking about. Well, the NIV fills it in by saying, remember this. The NASB says, now this I say. You see, they're all trying to supply the words left unsaid in the ellipsis. This, I mean, this what? And that's how you get the ESV saying, the point is this. You know, the translators are filling in words that are implied. And the reason I make mention of it is because when you read the ESV, it sounds like Paul meant to say, the point is this, or the point of what I've been saying is this. So the ESV makes it sound like verse 6 is a summary of all that Paul has been teaching in chapter 8 and then in the beginning of chapter 9. Now, that might be right, but I, for my part, I'm just not so sure. See, I don't think this is a summary of the point that Paul's been talking about. I actually think Paul's moving to a new topic. And that's why I prefer the NASB, which translates verse 9, now this I say, or perhaps even now that we've covered the matter of how you should respond to the pledge to give to the poor Christians in Jerusalem, now then, consider this important truth. I think Paul is saying, for those of you who are fearful about giving, wondering whether or not you can afford to become generous givers, Paul says, now consider this, that is, think about your giving from this vantage point, or even from three different vantage points. So here's the first. You can't outgive God. Now, when you hear that, are you wondering, is that promising too much? I mean, can that be true, and how can it be true? I mean, does that mean if you throw $100 in the offering plate in some unexpected place, you're going to reap a sum much larger than the $100 that you put in? I mean, what exactly is being promised to us right here? Now, those are great application questions, but let's step back and see if we can understand what's being said. As we can see, verse 6 is using an agricultural image. You have to imagine a farmer looking at his supply of seed and wondering how much he can afford to throw onto the field. You know, perhaps he says to himself, I should hang on to all my seed. You know, I don't know whether I'm going to have enough. I mean, after all, if I put it into the ground, I'll bet it's just going to be absorbed into the soil. I'll never be able to dig it up again when I need that seed. I mean, throwing it into an open field is madness. Now, you and I have never met a farmer who thinks that way. Of course, during seeding time, he throws away his precious seed onto an open field. And of course, he's not thinking, next week, if I find that seed, I know where I left it and I can go gather it up. See, every farmer knows that once the seed is planted, I mean, it's gone. But every farmer also understands that he's thinking long term. Plant that seed onto the field in spring and gather a harvest in fall that is hundreds of times larger than the seed that you originally planted. Now, this image of throwing seed onto the open field is an image that's often found in the First Testament when speaking about giving. So let's start with Proverbs 11:24 and 25. It says, One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. Whoever brings blessings will be enriched, and one who waters will himself be watered. There are those who read that who can't imagine that that might be true. See, we tend to think that it's the opposite that's true. 
The one who gives will be in danger of suffering want, and the one who keeps everything he gets, that's the one who grows richer. But, says Proverbs, that's actually not true. It's the one who gives that grows richer. Or listen to Proverbs 22, verse 9. Whoever has a bountiful eye will be blessed, for he shares his bread with the poor. So what is a bountiful eye? And I I might say it's the exact opposite of the person with a jaundiced eye or the greedy eye. One person looks at something and says, how can I get more? And the other person looks at the same thing and says, how can I contribute? What can I give? It's the giver that's blessed. He's the one who shares his bread with the poor. Consider Proverbs 14, verse 21. Whoever despises his neighbor is a sinner, but blessed is he who is generous to the poor. You see, God promises a blessing to the giver. It's not just Proverbs that speaks this way. It's also found in the very familiar and well-known Malachi 3, verse 10. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. And so we can very quickly see that 2 Corinthians 9, verse 6 is not the only place in our Bible that we are promised that God is no man's debtor. God never abandons the giver, or does he leave the giver with lack? But let's go back and look closely at verse 6. Notice it promises that whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. And the Greek word here translated as bountifully is an idiom in the Greek. It literally says, on the basis of blessing. Whoever sows on the basis of blessing will reap on the basis of blessing. See, the implication is that the blessing from God is a very large amount. So give a large amount, shovel it out, and you're going to find that God has a bigger shovel than you do, and he can shovel it in faster than you can shovel it out. Again, all farmers know that. Sow a lot, harvest a great deal more. Sow a little, harvest a little. But how is that true? Intuitively, we doubt it. You know, for a moment, take this thought out of the realm of giving and into the realm of living. You might remember the well-known martyr, Jim Elliott, who so famously wrote in his diary just before his martyrdom, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Of course, Elliott was speaking about his life. He couldn't keep his natural life, but once having gained eternal life, he couldn't lose that. So I'd be a fool, said Elliot, if I tried to gain the whole world and lost my eternity. This month, Dr. Neufeld will continue his video series, The Missionary God, which airs weekly on Back to the Bible Canada's YouTube channel. We believe these messages are so important for believers that we want to send you the expanded message series on CD for free. We'll explore questions like, why is it that God can allow so much suffering in the world? And why has God commanded us to make disciples of all nations? There are so many challenging questions, and though they may make us feel uncomfortable at times, they require Bible-focused responses. So join us this month on air, online, via podcast, or listen on the Back to the Bible Canada mobile app. Don't forget to ask for your free CD copy of this important series by calling us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.
I once heard a wonderfully funny story about a man who had died. The man had been owed $100,000 from three different friends, $300,000 in all. He had written in his will that his three debtors were to put the money, cash, into an envelope and then into his coffin. As the three men were driving home from the funeral, one of them confessed that he had held back $10,000 for himself. The envelope full of money had only $90,000 in it. The second man, now overcome with guilt, confessed that he had done worse. He had only put half the amount into the coffin. $50,000 was still in his briefcase back at his office. Well, the third man said, I'm shocked at both of you. I wrote him a check for the full amount. (laughs) You know, we laugh at that because we all know that we can't take it with us. But here's the truth. You know, you can invest this money into a blessing from God. Look again at our translation of verse 6. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, but whoever sows with blessings will also reap with blessings. God abundantly blesses those who give in order to abundantly bless others. God will not be your debtor. His blessings will be upon those who give to bless. Now, when I say it that way, please notice that I didn't say something else. You see, I didn't say that if you give $100, you're going to get $1,000 back from God. You know, verse 6 is not an incentive for greed. You know, rather, verse 6 is a promise very much like the one that we find in Luke 16, verse 11. It says, one who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you with true riches? Don't you see what God is planning for you? He's planning eternal riches. He's planning that you should be entrusted with more than you can imagine. I began by saying that we simply can't outgive God. Let's now move to the second vantage point of giving. Each person should give out of joy. Verse 7, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. You know, I know my references to what's actually said in the original Greek might seem tiresome to some, and I know, and I promise to quit soon, but, you know, it's just that there are so many ellipses in this sentence, and I think there's something very important here. The words must give are not in the original. That is, the original doesn't actually say each one must give as he has decided in his heart. Instead, it says each as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or out of compulsion. That is to say, we shouldn't put the emphasis in this verse on the words must give. And I mentioned that so that we won't think verse 9 says, look, if you've made a pledge to giving to a special project, you've got to pony up and shell out just as you've promised. That's not the point of verse 7. Rather, verse 7 says, look, this special project has been exactly that. It's been a special project. It's not being about giving to your local church, but rather a project over and above what you would normally give. And when you give to this project, there's no compulsion at all. Rather, each one, as he has decided, I'm compelling nothing. The phrase at the end that God loves a cheerful giver means that the giver has been all too happy to give. No one put a guilt trip on him or her. You know, at the very outset, this has been presented as a project that provided an opportunity to get involved in something that would signal to Jews and Gentiles alike that the church of Jesus Christ is a new humanity. And what do I mean here? You know, when Gentile Christians showed concern for Jewish Christians, 
by sacrificing their hard-earned money to care for them. What did it say? Well, it said that Jews and Gentiles were brothers, members of one family. I mean, who'd ever heard of such a thing before? That the wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile had been broken down in Christ. Christ had created one new man out of the two. That was the testimony of this giving project. See, lots of people said, you know, how do I get in on that? Indeed, they were moved by joy, not by duty or by drudgery. It was joy. It was cheerfulness. They were so thankful for the opportunity that had been presented to them. It wasn't a reaction of, oh, no, someone else wants my money. Rather, I want to be a giver. How can I find areas of investing my money so that I can be more actively involved in sowing the seed that God has given me? I don't know if you think this way or how you think when you think of giving. You know, Kathy and I have a commitment to our local church. I mean, after that, we're actively looking for giving in such a way that it meets several of our criteria. I mean, we want to give so that the gospel would advance. I love media ministry that, you know, that presents scripture for all to hear. I think we at Back to the Bible provide that. But Kathy and I also look to support missionaries. We look to give to the poor, where the poor also hear the gospel. Indeed, on this latter point, it's not always easy to find organizations that do both, you know, actively and wisely lifting up the poor, providing with the tools of self-sustainability and education and so forth, while at the same time offering the gospel as the ultimate need for the human soul. But when Kathy and I find that, we rejoice. We say, how can we get in on that? And here in verse 7, we find God's promise to us. God loves a cheerful giver. God loves it when his people are eager and full of gladness when good opportunities come along. You know, I once heard of a church that whenever they announced the offering, there was a rousing cheer that went up. You know, I've never seen that, but it does sound intriguing. Like all good things, I suppose it can degenerate into a custom that no longer has its original meaning. But the idea of enthusiasm around giving is a perspective that only people who are passionate about using their resources for the Lord's glory can possibly understand. All right, we've looked at two perspectives. First, you can't outgive God. And second, giving when it's done right flows out of an eager and joyful heart. Now, the third point. Faithful giving overflows to faithfulness in all other areas of life. It's just a principle that works. 2 Corinthians 9, 8 and 9. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Well, you might have noticed how often Paul uses the word all. He uses the word four times, and then if you add the word every to the list, you have it five times. All grace, all sufficiency, all things, all times, and then every good work. That is, God is able to do something that's universal. So let's look at these five phrases. First, God is able to make all grace abound to you. You know, this presupposes that God is present to all situations in our lives. In each and every situation, no matter what it is, he supplies grace. He supplies favor. He gives us things that we don't earn or deserve. And not only does he give us what we don't deserve at every point in our lives, but he does it by making it abound and overflow, giving us more grace than we had thought possible. And by calling it all grace, 
Paul is implying that every grace God has available at his disposal is given to us. I mean, it's a staggering thought. All grace. Next, because of all grace comes all sufficiency. That is to say, whatever you need, there's going to be enough. All grace for all sufficiency in all things. You know, I mean, what are all things? Well, where you need grace and sufficiency, everything's available. You know, perhaps you're saying, well, now I, I don't know if God's interested in even the small things in my life. Nonsense, says God. It will be in all things, not some things, not the majority of things, all things. The next all in all times, when you're young, when you're old, when you're mindful of God and when you're not, when you remember to plan well and when you forget. There's not a time in all the years that God gives you, not a single year in your life, not even an hour, not a minute or a second, where God's not actively involved in providing you with more grace than you had ever thought possible. And then says Paul, this is all for a purpose. God will ensure that you abound in every good work. The impact of what you do for the glory of God will be greater than you had imagined. And of course, every good work does include every work of giving. God is able to make that abound as well. But it also includes everything else. And that's why I began by saying that God's promises, that faithfulness in giving, overflows to every other area of our lives as well. And it's a wonderful antidote for the person who imagines that their life doesn't matter. God promises that it does matter as you give yourself to service to him. You know, Paul ends this section with a quote from Psalm 112, verse 9. And the psalm speaks of the righteous man whom God preserves. The righteous man, among other things, distributes his funds freely. He gives to the poor, and consequently, his righteous acts remain. That is, they endure. See, giving's not a burden. It's not a drain on your resources. It's not even a sacrificial act. Giving is an opportunity that enlarges your capacity to receive blessings from God. John, I have a, I think, a simple, straightforward question for you, but should we be made accountable for our giving? Well, yes, I think, but I would want to add some caution. Um, I I think we wouldn't want uh, people who have uh, not been given to be suddenly visited by the elders of a local church, because I think in those kind of conditions, it, it gets to be uh, almost legalistic and, uh, you know, freedom and joy is taken away, people looking over each other's shoulders. But I think we should find people um, that uh, we want to be accountable to, uh, who love us, who will graciously speak into our lives. So we ought to give people the freedom to ask one another, how are you doing in your giving? Uh, Are you giving in such a way that the Lord is pleased? See, these are questions of our own spiritual development. So yes, let's be asking that. Thanks again, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. For anyone seeking to know God or to understand the Bible and how it can be applied to your daily life, Back to the Bible Canada provides trustworthy Bible teaching resources addressing relevant questions of life and faith. If you believe in the importance of sharing the Word of God across our nation, perhaps you'd consider offering a financial gift to support Back to the Bible Canada this month. Or consider even becoming a member of our 1119 Fellowship, our monthly giving program. Your regular gift ensures that the daily Bible teaching program you're hearing right now 
is heard in your community and across the country. Your gift of any amount allows the Word of God to reach those searching for truth. To send a one-time gift or to become an 1119 monthly partner, call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.